This is KMTT and the weekly Pashat HaShavua Shir. This year, Tavshin Ayn, it will be given by Harav Chanoch Waxman. This week, Pashat Ayikra, I'd like to speak a little bit about some of the details of the Korban Mincha. Um, beginning here in Vayikra, Perak Bet, Pasuk Dalit, uh, after beginning to describe the Korban Mincha, the meal offering, the Torah tells us as follows. Um, and when you bring a Korban Mincha, it's baked in an oven, she made of fine flour, chalot, matzot, blot, bashemen, cakes of matzah soaked in oil, kike matzot, meshuchim bashemen, or patties of matzah, um, with oil poured over them. So we are told here that um, the instructions for making of the meal offering, the meal offering which of course consists of flour and oil, um, we're told here that the cakes um, or patties of um, the mincha should be made as matzah with oil. We go then on to the next type of mincha in the next pasuk, paragbet pasuk hey, ve'imincha ala machvat korbanecha, and it was a mincha brought in a certain type of pan, solat bula bashemen, again, fine flour soaked in oil, matzah it should be matzah, etc. And what the Torah does here is go through the various types of minachot, of meal offerings, and describe the instructions for them. And then, as we read on, we get to a fascinating, interesting summary verse, which certainly aroused the curiosity of many of the Mepharshim, and I think as well should arouse our curiosity. In Vayikra Perak Bet, Pasuk Yud Aleph, we're told as follows, V'kol ha-mincha asher takrivu l'ashem, every mincha that is brought to Hashem, lo te'aseh chametz, it should not be made out of leaven or of chametz, ki kol sa'or, because all sa'or, leavening material, yeasts, etc., v'chol dvash, and all kinds of sweet, honey-like materials, lo taktiru imenu ishel Hashem, should not be brought as a, which translate is brought, as a fire offering in front of God. And the Torah continues on, Karban Reshit, Takrivotam, they can be brought as Karban Reshit, but they cannot be brought as a Karban, and a Mincha cannot contain neither Chametz, Sa'or, i.e. fully risen bread, or Sa'or, leavened material in any sense whatsoever, nor Dvash, nor sweet honey-like material in the context of the Chumash, Dvash not being bees honey, but probably being Dvash Tmarim, um, a kind of sweet substance made from dates, or perhaps some other fruit. And the interesting question um, that aroused uh, the interest of the Mepharshim here is why is there such a prohibition? Why the emphasis in the Torah um, on this Isur, this prohibition of Chamet slash Sa'ar, um, leavened material Sa'ar, um, or Dvash, uh, the sweet fruit stuff upon the Mizbeach? Now, um, I would like to read you, just to kind of begin, Abarbanel's formulation of the question, which is rather interesting in and of its own right. Abarbanel organizes his comments often to a particular portion of the Torah as questions and answers. Here in She'ela Yudbet uh, relates to the issue we just raised a moment ago. And Abarbanel says, kol mincha asher lo It says, every mincha that you bring before God should not be made into chametz v'gomer. Why was it necessary to specifically mention that all leavened material and sweet dvash type material 
cannot be brought as a fire offering. Ki nehi yadua haya shalu hukshiru lahakrava ela hadvarim shetziva Hashem. Um, there's only a matir, only permission to bring for hakravah, to bring as a korban, things that God positively commands. And Ababinol goes on to point out, as if the Torah had said that one brings from pigeons or doves, the Torah doesn't need to bother to mention that you don't bring a korban from chickens or ducks. And therefore, what is the need to prohibit something when it wasn't positively commanded? Ababinol formulates the question, we might say, as almost a matter of Hilchot Kadashim, the laws of Kadashim, the laws of Mizbeach. There's of course a rule, a halacha, that one can only bring on the Mizbeach, on the altar, that which is positively commanded. Something which is not positively commanded on the Mizbeach has the status of Chulin Ba'azara, something which is not Kadosh, not holy, and of course that cannot be brought upon the Mizbeach. So if something is not mandated, then it's obviously prohibited. But strangely enough, nevertheless, the Torah goes out of its way to prohibit explicitly the chametz and the sa'ar and the vash. And that would seem to be wholly unnecessary. If the Torah has not mandated it, then it's automatically prohibited. Now, Abarbanel's approach here is almost a kind of halachic question. He's bothered by the halachic logical problem of why the necessity for the prohibition. But I do think that this halachic logical formulation of Abarbanel is the key to an underlying deeper philosophical problem. Clearly, the Torah views Chametz, Dvash, and Saor, Chametz, Saor, and Dvash is inherently problematic. There's something, some reason why the Torah has to um, go out of its way to prohibit them. And I think the intriguing question here is not so much uh, the issue of the halakhic logical problem, why is it necessary uh, to mention the prohibition, but more the philosophical problem, the problem of Tameha Mitzvot, the interpretive problem, what's the meaning of the prohibition, and why does the Torah emphasize it here? And this is what I would like to discuss. Now, I would like to share with you two approaches. Um, one, which uh, originates in Rambam and is cited here by Ramban on these psukim, and the other, which I think involves exploring a little more broadly what chametz uh, is all about, and in that sense might be uh, topical uh, to our time, the first week of Chodesh Nisan. Let us begin with Rambam, as cited by Ramban, in explaining the prohibition of Chametz, Sa'or, and Dvash. So Ramban here in his comment in Perik Bet, Pasukyut Aleph, says as follows, V'tam ha-Sa'or v'ha-Dvash. And the reason for the prohibition of Sa'or and Dvash, Yitachein, possible, Shuki divrei ha-Rav b'mor'en It is like the words of the Rav in the Guide to Perplexed. Amar shamatzah b'sifrehem, he found in their books, Shaminhag haya lo'ovdei avodah zara l'atkriv kol minchatam chametz. That there was a custom of of Iva worshippers to bring every mincha, every meal offering as chametz, to make it into leavened material. And to mix up the sweet stuff, the honey, into uh, their karbanot, their offerings to their gods. And therefore, it was prohibited to Gavoah, it was prohibited to God, prohibited to Mizbeach. Um, the idea here is here, as Rambam points out numerous places in Morinabuchim, that the Torah is very concerned with distancing 
um, one from Avodah Zarah or distancing Bnei Israel from Avodah Zarah. And therefore, if there is a practice that is a practice of Avdei Avodah Zarah, perhaps there is no inherent problem with that practice per se, but it is prohibited because of a Gzerah, uh, because it is Minhag Avodah Zarah. Um, to distance Am Yisrael from practices of Avodah Zarah. Of course, this raises the larger question of the relationship of Karbanot in the philosophy of Rambam um, to the fact that Karbanot were clearly a practice of Avodah Zarah. But for the moment, let us not go into that. And let us accept the point, um, cited here by Rambam in the name of Rambam, that the right way to understand the uh, prohibition of Chametz, Sarah and Dvash, is because it is a practice of idol worshippers and it's about distancing a kind of harchaka, a distancing from the practice of idol worship. And um, Rahman goes on to put this into a kind of larger general theory, which he himself adopts often uh, on the Chumash. And he continues on in his comment as follows. And as in this fashion, our Rabbanim said in the Sifri, uh, The practice of making a matzeva, a single stone, erected as a kind of monument or altar. This was uh, chosen, this was approved of in the days of the forefathers, B'meha Avot. God hated it. Because it became a custom of Avodah cites here is the fact that we can open up Sefer Bereshit and we can find numerous practices that later on are censured in Sefer Dvarim. Um, for example, the taking of numerous wives, uh, sisters as wives, by the Avot. Um, Yaakov marries Rachel and Leah. Um, or the building of a Matzeva, something else that Yaakov Avinu does. And later, or uh, perhaps taking Nidarim. And later on in Sefer Dvarim, we can note that the Matzeva, the single stone, is considered prohibited. And the taking of two wives or sisters is considered prohibited. And um, taking Nidarim is frowned upon in Sefer Dvarim. And the idea is, uh, as Ramban explains, is this gap between what might be thought of as Torah Avot, the way the Avot did things, and Torah Moshe, the way things are done in Sefer Durim, can be explained because of historical development. That these became a practice of Avodah Zarah, and as practices of certain culture, other cultures, therefore they are prohibited by the Torah later on in Sefer Durim. And the idea is here that this would be a kind of fourth example, uh, that uh, Chametz and Dvash and Sa'ar, as uh, part of offerings, will be prohibited because of practice of Avodah And this is the theory of Rambam and Ramban. Okay. Now, while this might, in fact, uh, indeed be correct, I do think that it might not sufficiently explain all of the facts in our Psukim. And uh, I'd like to just return to the Psukim for the moment and to point out that I think that there's kind of something lacking uh, in this theory, or something that it doesn't explain. If we go back to Perek Bet, um, Pasuk Yud Bet, uh, immediately after Yud Aleph, where the prohibition of Chametz, Dvash, and Sa'or uh, is laid down, the Torah says in Bet Yud Bet, Korban Reshit Takrivu Otam. Bring them as a Korban Reshit, as this firstling offering, whatever that is, and we'll have to talk about that a little bit later. Ve'alam Ezbech, Lo Yalu, but they do not go upon the Ezbech. And uh, it's rather strange if Chametz and Sa'or and Dvash are the practice of Avodah Zarah, it would seem strange that they are then mandated as this Korban Reshit. Uh, if we're dealing with some sort of Gzerah, some sort of distancing from practice of Avodah Zarah, we would expect it to be perhaps across the board regarding the objects of 
chametz, sar, and devash, and it's rather surprising that they are allowed and even commanded for this thing called korban reshit. Um, and that's just only one problem. I think there's actually more to it. If we go back to the beginning of the parsha until now, we have been talking about a prohibition of chametz and devash. But in fact, there's also a kind of positive commandment in our um, parsha of Mincha. And I go back to some of the uh, sukim we read before, Parag Bet, Pasuk Dalad, where we began. Ki takriv korban mincha ma'afat tanor solat chalot matzot b'lot b'shemen. Or kikei matzot mishukim b'shemen. Vim minchal ma'afat korban echasot b'lot b'shemen matzah tihiyah. And without being exhaustive or even translating, the emphasis here is obvious. It is not just that it is prohibited to um, make a mincha, to make the flour and oil as bread, as uh, chametz, to add zar, but there's a positive requirement. It sounds like a kind of um, a positive sense that it should be matzah. And in fact, the Torah begins with the positive requirement to make the mincha as matzah, and only later on mentions the prohibition of chametz. So while perhaps Ramban and Ramban's theory uh, might explain the prohibition of chametz and sa'ar and vash, it doesn't really account neither for the korban reshit nor for the positive um, requirement of matzah in mincha, so it, there might be sufficient reason to look for an additional explanation. What I would like to do is to try for the moment to leave the realm of Sefer Vayikra, at least temporarily, um, and also to leave the realm of history, uh, claims about what were practices or not practices of the Zarah, and to think perhaps a bit more in terms of the text of the Chumash, and to try to maybe explore symbolically or explore the symbolism of Matzah and Chametz, or Chametz and Ratzah, respectively, in the Chumash. And perhaps by building a kind of larger theory as to what Matzah and Chametz represent, or are really all about, perhaps we might be able to come back and solve the problem as to why Matzah is appropriate for a Mincha, Chametz is prohibited, along with Sa'ar and Dvash, and yet allowed and mandated for the Korban Reshit. So, if so, let us go back all the way to Sefer Shmot, to more or less the point in time where um, we might say that uh, Matzah enters the um, collective consciousness of Am Yisrael as a, a people. Um, this takes us back to Shmot Perak Yud Bet, and I would like to begin with Shmot Perak Yud Bet, Pasuk Vav. Uh, Shmot Perak Yud Bet, Pasuk Vav says as follows. It is part of the command of Korban Pesach, of course. And Moshe commands the Am to take the Seh, uh, to take the sheep, the lamb, to set it aside and to keep it until the, the 14th day. And then everyone slaughters it. And then they take the blood and they put it on the, uh, two, um, the, uh, two doorposts and the, and the lintel. And then they're going to eat the Korban Pesach. And then when we finally get to the command of eating the Korban Pesach, in Perak Bet, Pasuk Chet, the Torah says as follows, And they will eat the meat of the Korban on this night, Sli'esh, it is roasted, Umatzot al And it is eaten um, with matzah, along with matzah, and mororim, and bitter herbs, yochluhu. And the question is, why is the Korban Pesach eaten with matzah and uh, maror? Um, And this is rather interesting. What does matzah represent here? I think on some level, 
the answer is relatively obvious. Um, we know that matzah is referred to as lechem oni, uh, impoverished bread, or the uh, the poor man's bread, the bread of affliction, as we often translate. This, of course, is based upon Dvarim Perek Tet Zayin, Pasuk Gimel, where in commanding Chag HaMatzot, or reiterating Chag HaMatzot, uh, Moshe says to B'nai Yisrael in Perek Tet Zayin, Pasuk Gimel, say, V'dvarim lo tochal alav chametz, shivat yamim tochal alav matzot, lechem oni, it is lechem oni, poor, impoverished bread, and most probably... Um, the matzah eaten with the Korban Pesach, that first night in Mitzrayim, is eaten as a symbol of slavery. Um, and uh, the, co- the correlation with the Marar, of course, supports this nicely. And it's important to go back to a couple of psukim in Shemot Perak Aleph. Um, uh, key language, which is important to remember whenever speaking about matzah and Marar. Um, in Shemot Perak Aleph, Pasuk uh, Yud Aleph, uh, we're told about the enslavement in Egypt. And Aleph Yud Aleph, uh, Perak Aleph Pasuk Yud Aleph says, Vayasimu alav sarei misim, they put upon them taskmasters, leman anoto besivlotam, to afflict them with the labor. Vayiven ari miskinot leparo bepitom betram says, now of course they were meant to be afflicted and to and to build uh, these cities, and inui is the language here, um, and Inui is about wearing them down. But of course, exactly the opposite happens. Shemot perek al pasuk yudbet, the kasher yanu oto, as they were afflicted, kain yerbet, so they multiplied, kain yefrot, so that kutsu with mepnei b'nei Yisrael. Um, and they were disgusted by b'nei Yisrael. So there was this process of Inui which backfired on the Egyptians. Then they worked them harder, by avidu b'yitzrayim b'nei Yisrael b'farach, vayimaruru et chayim ba'avodah kasha b'chomer u'bulveinim. So as part of the avodat parech, they embittered their lives with avodah kasha. And we come back to Perak Yudbet, Pasuk Chet, and we see that they ate the Korban Pesach with the Maror. The Maror is the bitterness of Vayamaror et Chayihem. And I would say that the Matzah is the Lechem Oni. It's the Inui of Mitzrayim, the afflicted bread, the low bread. It's a symbol of slavery. The reason for eating Matzah and Maror with the Korban Pesach that first night is to know from whence you are being taken out of. It is symbolic of the avdut experience, the state from which Geula emerges. One can only sense redemption or realize what redemption is if one first experiences slavery. So one first experiences the slavery of that moment, the place, the experience, um, the depths of the matzah and the mora of the slavery, and only then from this which can Geula emerge, etc. Now, as we go on, I believe that matzah takes on some additional symbolism. And we can already, in fact, see this um, right, almost right there in the Psukim uh, of Shemot Perak Yudbet. Now, we're told uh, that various laws of the Korban Pesach, and then Shemot Perak Yudbet, Pasuk Yud Aleph, says as follows, V'kacha tochlu oto, and so you should eat it, Matnechem chagurim, your belt should be fastened, Na'alechem ragalechem, and your feet should be on your shoes, your sticks in your hands, and you should eat it quickly. Now, the way you ate the matzah on that first night is as part of the Korban Pesach. At any moment, God is going to pass over your homes. At any moment, God is going to smite the Egyptians. At any moment, the redemption is going to happen. And therefore, you eat it with your loins girded and your, your belts tightened, your shoes on your feet, your sticks in your hands, and you eat it quickly, because the gula is about to happen. 
Um, so it is not just a symbol of slavery, matzah, but that first eating of matzah is also a symbol of preparation for gu'ula, uh, the tightening of one's belt and the putting on of one's shoes and the grasping of one's stick because the redemption is about to happen at any moment. Now, as we go on in the parsha, I think the matzah takes on a third level of symbolism, not just the experience of slavery from where gu'ula emerges, not just preparation for gu'ula, but something else as well. If we take a look in Shmot, Perak Yud Bet, Pasuk Yud Gimel, a few Pasukim later, the Torah tells us about the dam. Vayadam lachem lotalabatim, and the blood will be for a sign on the house of Shertam Sham. For eat yet adam, and I'll see the blood of Pasachti Alechem, and I'll pass over, and I'll protect your houses, and there won't be a negif, there won't be a mashchit. And then afterwards, in Pasuk Yud Dalid, we suddenly get the command for generations. It should be a remembrance, you should remember it. And you will um, celebrate it forever for generations. And now we get the command of Chag HaMatzot. So the command of Chag HaMatzot, which is found in Shmot Perkin Aleph, Pasuk Tetvav, these seven days of matzah and no chametz, as elaborated here in the Pesukim, are a logical continuation of upasachti aleichem v'lo yebem negev. There's some sort of connection um, between um, the seven days chak matzot and the pasachti aleichem, the fact that God passed over your houses and didn't allow the mashchit to come into the house. And this in itself is a bit strange, but I think a bit further on, the Psukim perhaps elaborate upon this connection between Pesach, the moment of redemption on the one hand, and Chag HaMatzot on the other hand. In Perak Yudbet, Pasuk Yudzayin, immediately following the command of the Chag HaMatzot, the Torah says as follows, Ushmatem et HaMatzot, and you should watch or guard Matzot. I'm clear what this means. Ki um, because on this day, I took your host out of Egypt, um, and you should keep this day forever. Now, it could be that we should interpret Yud Bet Yud Zayin as, oh, and you should keep the mitzvah of matzah, and keep this day as a memory, and that's really all there is to it. Because I think that would be incorrect, because in fact, the, the stem, stem Shin Mem Resh for Shmirah appears a few more times in Shmot, um, Perak Yud Bet. And what I have in mind most specifically is Shmot Perak Yud Bet, Pasuk Mem Aleph, um, and an interesting comment um, about of Ibn Ezra on that Pasuk. We're told in Shmot Perak uh, at Yud, Mem Aleph Mem Bet. We're told in Shmot Perak Yud Bet, Pasuk Mem Aleph through Yud Bet, as follows. Vayimi Ketz, Shloshim Shana, Vayabam Ayot Shana, Vayim Be'etzim Ayom Azei, Yatsu Kol Tzivot Hashem Eretz Mitzrayim, they went out, Leil Shimurim Hu Lashem. It was a guarded night to God, to take them out of Meretzitzrayim. So again, Shimurim twice, Shmirat twice for the third and fourth time in the parsha. And there's this notion of watching or guarding. And what's the whole watching or guarding? Ibn Ezra points out that the Leil Shimurim Hu Lashem is referring to the fact that God guarded our homes. God was poseach, who pasachti alechem back in Yud Aleph Yud Gimel. God kept the mashchit, the destroying agent from entering into our house. He was shomer, he guarded us. Now, I think the whole idea here of the Shemirah and the Parsha is that that's exactly what Ushmatim Matzot is in Parakid Bet Pasuk Yud Zayin. 
in order not to become chametz. And it's immediately after the prohibition of chametz that the Torah says, immediately after uh, this, or in order for the matzot not to become chametz, they have to be guarded. They have to be watched. On the biblical plane, the whole notion of shmirat matzah or matzah shmurah is a commemoration of the fact that God guarded, God watched at that very moment of redemption. He protected us and guarded us and watched us and didn't let the mashut come into the house. So the symbol of matzah is not just step one, the place you emerge from, the abdut. Not just step two, the preparation for gu'ula and that first moment of eating, but it's also step three, the very moment of redemption and our watching of the matzot is a commemoration of God's watching at that moment of redemption of Pesach, etc. Now, this brings us, of course, to the fourth uh, symbolism of matzah, as the symbol develops in Perak Yibet, and here, of course, to the most famous one, the one that we all should remember well from the Haggadah. Shmot Perak Yibet, Pasek Kaftet, goes on to describe the redemption. in the middle of the night, God smote every firstborn in Egypt, etc. And Paro gets up and they're screaming in Egypt and he chases down Moshe and Aaron and he throws them out. And Shmot Perak Yudbet Pasik Lama Gimel says, And the uh, Egyptians were strong against the people to be quick to send them out of the land. Kemru Kulonim Etim Rogom to die. And what happened? Pasik Lama Dalad. And the people lifted up their dough before it could become chametz. Um, it wasn't time for it to rise. They slung it over their backs, etc. And they left. They traveled, 600,000 of them and others. And now they were already leaving Egypt. We're now post-redemption. The journey is beginning, and they have this dough that didn't have time to rise, that they're taking with them on the journey. And what are we told in Shemot Perak Yibet, Pasek Lamed Tet, Vayahofu etabatsek asher hotziyo mimitzrayim ugot matzot. And they baked the dough that they'd taken out of Egypt as cakes of matzah, ki lo chametz. There was no time for it to become, it had not risen. Ki gashu mimitzrayim, they were chased out of Egypt, v'lo yechlu etmamea, and they could not delay, etc. So there's a fourth symbolism of matzah, or it kind of bridges another stage in the historical process, the actual leaving from Egypt, the beginning of the journey, and the fact that the Bnei Israel had to bake their dough as matzah. To put this together, I believe that matzah symbolizes the redemptive process, from its beginnings in the place of slavery, through preparation for redemption, through the actual very moment of redemption, and also uh, through the aftermath of redemption, the beginnings of the journey, eventually to Eretz Yisrael, of course. We might say that, thinking in the language of Shemot Perek Vav, what we think of as the Lashanot of Geula, the languages of redemption, Matzah symbolizes Votseti, Vitzalti, Vigaalti. It is the redemptive process in its fullness. Um, but it ends there. It doesn't go any further. And matzah ends there. And let us put matzah aside for the moment. Now, does all this help us? Well, perhaps. Um, but we'll need to understand a little bit more about chametz. What does chametz symbolize? Well, of course, chametz is the physical opposite of matzah. Where matzah um, has not yet risen, it is kind of not yet, it is not yet full, chametz has has fully risen. Okay, this is true. So it's the halachic opposite of matzah. Um, 
where Matai is commanded, Chamet is prohibited, etc. But I think there's much more to it than that. And to understand this, we need to go back to Vayikra, uh, Perak um, Bet, the mysterious Korban Reshit, um, and to take a look at some other Pesukim in Vayikra and um, Dvarim. Um, again, in Vayikra, Perak Bet, um, Pasuk Yud Bet, we are told, Korban Reshit Takrivu Otam Lashem, bring the Chametz, the Sa'or and the Dvash, as a Korban Reshit, a first Korban to God. Now, what, what is this Korban Reshit? Well, interestingly enough, Rashi and all the other Mepharshim tell us that the Korban Reshit is the Shtehalechem. The, the, the beginning or the first thing Korban is it's the Shtehalechem, the two breads that are brought in the Migdash on Shavuot, seven weeks after Pesach. Um, or alternatively, they are Bikurim, uh, or anything which has a status of Bikurim, of firsts, is referred to in the Torah as this kind of Korban Reshit. And the claim of Rashi and Ibn Ezra and others as well, that um, for Korban Reshit Bikurim, of course you can bring um, Sa'ar and Devash and Chametz, etc. So let us go and take a look at some of the Pesukim about these various Korban. Let us begin with Vayikra, uh, Perak Kaf Gimel, Pasuk Tetvav. Vayikra Perak Kaf Gimel, Pasuk Tetvav, elaborates for us the Korban HaOmer and the Sirat HaOmer cycle. Of course, on the morrow of Pesach, one brings the Korban HaOmer, the waving of some grain, of grain in the Beit HaMikdash, which begins and signals the new harvest and permits, it is matir, the eating of the new harvest of what is called chadash. And in Vayikra Perkafkim, Pasuk Tetvav, we're told, Usfartem lachami machrata Shabbat, you shall count from this day of the machrata Shabbat, the day when the Omer is brought, miyoma v'yachemet omer tnufa, the day you brought the waved Omer, sheva Shabbatot mimoti yena, seven whole weeks, abi machrata Shabbat hashviit, etc., and then we're told at the end of Pasuk Tetzain, Vikravtem Mincha Chadasha Lashem. You will bring a Mincha Chadasha. It is Chadasha. It is from the new grain, from the new Tfu'ah. It is Bikurim Halachically. It is the new, the firsts. This is the Reshit. Uh, this is the notion of Korban Reshit. Here you refer to it in a slightly different way by the word Chadasha. And what do you bring? Mimoshvotechem Taviu Lechem Tnufa. From your homes. You bring bread for waving shtayim too. They must be made out of chametz, these breads. Bikurim Lashem. Um, they are firstlings to Hashem. So it's a mincha chadasha. These are bikurim. This is something that's first, that's brought to Hashem. And it must be chametz. And it's brought seven weeks after the harvest begins. What, what is the idea here? What is the symbolism of shtei well, as we know from other psukim found in Tvarim, that these first seven weeks of the harvest from Pesach to Shavuot are a key time. And it is after these uh, seven weeks that the, the bounty uh, of Eretz Yisrael is clear to those who have engaged in the harvest. There's a certain kind of fullness that's been realized. Um, and as part uh, of Hoda'a Lashem, thanksgiving to God, 
um, as an expression of this fullness of the harvest, of the bounty of the harvest, the Shtei HaLechem are brought from your homes, the place where you experience, in, where you experience this fullness this, of this bounty, and they are brought to the Beit HaMidash as a Korban Toda, as a Mincha Chadasha, as a Bikurim Lashem. And now we understand why they must be baked as Chametz, because they must be risen, they must be full, the fullness, the height, the accomplishment, so to speak, of the bread symbolizes the fullness, the bounty of the harvest. In other words, on some plane, what we see here beginning to develop, that Pesach, which is associated with the Omer, and which is associated with Matzah, is symbolic or connected on some level to process, uh, to beginnings. The beginning of the redemptive process it spans the entire redemptive process, and it's just the beginnings of the journey. But it does not real, uh, symbolize or bring us to realization or fruition or to accomplishment or to ends. As opposed to here, the end of the seven weeks of counting, seven weeks later, um, the Chag of Shavuot. Here, this is associated with something different, the fullness, the realization of the harvest, the bounty embodied in the Shtei And apparently... Chametz is, in this sense, the conceptual opposite of Matzah. But we need a little bit more. We need one more set of Sukkim before we can wrap this up. Let us go to a place where Reshit is mentioned explicitly in the Torah, in Dvarim Perak Kafvav, very important Sukkim, Pashat HaBikurim. Dvarim Perak Kafvav, Pasuk Aleph, tells us the following. Vayaki Tavo El um, and it will be when you come to the land. Hashem, Hashem, You come to the land that God gives you as an inheritance and you will dwell in it. And you will take from the first of the fruit. This is the Karban Reshit. And of course, what do you do with it? And you come to the Kohen, right? After bringing it to the Beit HaMikdash. And then when you bring this Bikurim, these, these fruits in the basket, etc., as we know, and you come to the Beit HaMikdash with the Bikurim, with the fruits, with the Reshit, there's an interesting historical story that you're required to tell as part of the procedure of Bikurim. And you say, I profess in front of God that I've come to the land. And then you continue on and you tell a very familiar story to us. My father was a wandering Aramean. And the Egyptians oppressed us and they put upon us hard work and we cried out to God and God redeemed us. We actually say the Psukim of Arami Oviravi, the Psukim that we use and are familiar to us as Hagadat Pesach. We recount this kind of historical story of what had happened. But what's the point of all that? The answer is, is that in Parshat Bikurim, the Parshat of Reshit, of bringing fruits um, and bounty to Beit HaMikdash, that story has an end. Parakavav Pasuk says, Ve'vi'enu elamakom hazeh, God brought us to this place, and he brought us to this land flowing with milk and honey. And here are the Bikurim, and the Bikurim are Dvash. They are made from Te'inim, or they're the sweet fruit stuff, the bounty of the land, the realization of the entire redemptive process. And the whole idea is to tell the story of the redemptive process, including its end, as part of a procedure of thanksgiving in front of God in the Beit HaMikdash, Now I've brought the Reshit. 
I think what we should realize here is that just as chametz and lechem represent bounty of the harvest of Eretz Yisrael, the, so to speak, end of the redemptive process, so too, the dvash, here in Parshat Bikurim, the other karban reshit, represents the bounty of Eretz Yisrael, the end of that redemptive process, the eventual telos, or tachlit, of that purpose, and the thanksgiving to God. To put this all together, and time is short, so we do have to end, I think we have here a kind of opposition between two symbols, two holidays, and two places. On the one hand, we have chametz. Uh, chametz, which is the bread of not yet. Um, it has not yet risen physically. It is associated with the redemptive process in all its stages, from the slavery to the beginnings of the journey. Um, because the redemptive process is something that is also, in some sense, not yet. It is just the beginning. This, of course, is associated with the holiday, with the Chag of Pesach, and is associated with the journey to Eretz Yisrael, one which is not yet completed. It is associated with the leaving of Egypt. On the other hand, we have another bread. But this bread, the bread of Chametz, also connected with Dvash on some level, is not about not yet, but it is about fullness. It is about completion. The bread has risen. And it's associated with a very different place. It's associated with um, Eretz Yisrael, the end, the eventual purpose of that redemptive process. And it is associated with a different Chag Shavuot, which comes seven weeks after Pesach, after the cycle has been completed, we've symbolically reached the end of that process. To put this all together and put this in more philosophical terminology, which might help us resolve our original problem, Matzah is the bread of not yet. It is the bread of potential. It is the bread of possibility. It is the bread of journey. It is the bread of becoming and of not yet. On the other hand, chametz, this is not the bread of not yet, but this is the bread of actualization, of realization, of fullness, of having arrived. To put this in philosophical terminology, it is not potential but realization, or it is not becoming, but it is rather being. It is not not yet, but it rather is fully in the fullest sense. And I think this is all the symbolisms of matzah on the one hand, and chametz, and dvash on the other hand in the chumash. How does this help us? Well, I think if we return to karbanot, we might realize something quite interesting. The karban mincha in Parak Bet of Sefer Vayikra is connected to the karban olav, or perhaps sometimes connected to the karban chatat. It is about the penitent, um, not necessarily seeking kapara, forgiveness, one who wants to come close to God, one who wants to raise himself up in front of God. And the question becomes, when he brings the karban mincha, what is the right symbol that he should motivate or mobilize? Should this person bring the symbols of fullness, completion, fullness of being, of being itself? Should he use chametz and sa'or and dvash? Or perhaps not. Or perhaps the appropriate symbol for this person are the symbols of, of not yet. Uh, the appropriate symbols for the religious quest and endeavor are the symbols of not yet, of becoming, of journey, of matzah. And the answer the Torah gives us is dafka matzah. It is the symbol of lowliness and humbleness, of not yet, of becoming, that's mandated for the korban mincha. And of course, the symbol of highness and fullness and full-fledged being and having arrived are prohibited for the korban mincha. And perhaps this explains the focus, the mandate of matzah, and the prohibition of chametzah or endavash, in the case of the karban mincha, is part of the Torah's larger treatment of 
chametz and matzah, matzah and chametz, respectively. Okay.